this morning, I wanted to talk to you about what Jesus requires of you. What Jesus requires of you. In Matthew uh, 13, Steve just read what the kingdom of God is like. It's like finding something so valuable you are willing to sell everything in order to have it. So much has happened on the cross, and as we know, the cross is where God purchased you and I from sin. He paid our sin debt to himself. Therefore, he now owns us. So much happened on the cross, in a nutshell. Uh, I will say that we were redeemed. We were reconciled. We were sanctified, justified. Now, when we hear those words, we go like, well, those are beautiful words. Not so sure what they mean. So in a nutshell, I'll tell you that at the cross, you were redeemed. To be redeemed means to be purchased. You go and you redeem an item at the store by paying for it. The moment the payment is accepted is the moment ownership for that item changes. It used to be owned by Costco. <laughs> the moment Costco receives your $275 for the rose you went to go buy your, your wife, <laughs> the moment they receive that amount is the moment ownership changes. It's no longer Costco's, it's ours because they received the payment. And in the same way, the moment God received the payment that Christ made, ownership changed, you no longer were owned by sin. You are now owned by Christ. So to be redeemed means to be purchased. To be reconciled means to be back in fellowship with him. Sin broke fellowship with him, but the moment you were redeemed, you came back into fellowship with God. You were reconciled. To be justified means to be declared innocent. The judge's gavel dropped, and the moment that gavel sounds, the decision has been made completely. The moment that gavel drops, he said, innocent, justified. Justified. No guilt on your part. To be sanctified means to be made holy. To be set apart for God's purposes and for God's work. All of this happened right at the cross. All of this is true for you, and the Bible speaks of it in the past tense. You were justified, past tense. You were reconciled. You were sanctified. You were redeemed. This happened for you 2,000 years ago. <laughs> However, what I would like to do today is, after reminding you of everything that was given to you for free, you couldn't purchase it, you certainly don't deserve it, and you cannot earn it. After everything that was given to you and I, the question I have this morning is, what was Jesus' message to us when he walked this planet? Not considering only what Jesus purchased for you and I, because he was going to do that anyhow. He was going to do that anyhow. But what did Jesus call us into when he did that for us? I know what he did for me. The question is, what, it is, what is it that he is requiring of me? Right? So in looking through the message Jesus echoed through his ministry, it's recorded in the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We can frame it this way. Living by dying. Have you noticed that in Scripture, everything somehow turns around? Who's the greatest in the kingdom? The least, yeah, is the greatest. Who has? The one who gives. I mean, everything. How do you live? Die. 
everything in the kingdom is contrary to the flesh. I mean, even in even in relationships, how how do you how do you turn away wrath? How do you turn away somebody screaming? Give a soft answer. That's <laughs> like So in looking through the message that Jesus echoed, we see winning by losing, living by dying, gaining by giving, becoming greater by becoming lesser. So Jesus' message in a nutshell is that you have to lose your life in order to gain your life. Let me say it differently. You have to lose your life in order to gain life. You have to die in order to live. So in this next passage, we see Jesus was already drawing large crowds at this point. Uh, we see Jesus calling people to himself, and this is how he does that. Now, in today's church world, people are called to Jesus in different ways. A friend of mine, we were talking about a common friend we have who, who does a lot of evangelism. However, we don't really minister the same way. And the question was, how, how is it different? I'm like, well, <clears throat> some people say, if you have an ache in your body, come to Jesus. He will save you. But I preach, <laughs> if, you, if you have a broken relationship with God because of sin, come to Christ. He's the Lamb of God who takes away your sin. And so, people oftentimes call crowds to Christ in different ways. I don't really see a different way other than Jesus' way. And here is exactly how he does that. It says in Luke 14, 25, large crowds were traveling with Jesus. And turning to, him, turning to them, he said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, Brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life. What's he saying? If anyone does not come, if anyone comes to me but does not hate everything else and even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. Those are hard words, wouldn't you say? That's rough. Can't be my disciple. Man, Jesus sets the bar so high. We tend to set the bar so low. We want everybody to get in, right? But he goes like, Massive crowd, massive evangelism. Hate everybody and yourself and you'll be my disciple. <laughs> it's like Dale Carnegie needs to teach Jesus how to do this. <laughs> but no, Jesus knows what he's doing. And then he says, verse 27, And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Man, th there are a lot of things required here of them. Verse 28, suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, everyone, will, everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying, this person began to build and wasn't able to finish. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he's able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he is not able... He will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. So there are many who want to identify with Christ, you know, like for instance in big crusades and so forth, who have not been told to count the cost, to count the cost before building this building. They set the bar so low, say, just add Jesus to your life. Just pray this simple prayer after me. Just pray it. All right. Do you have beads to go with it? <laughs> you know, how do I, do I just say, say these words? Make Jesus the savior of your life. Well, that's not even possible, but that's what the call is. Or here's another one. Just accept Jesus into your heart and you'll be saved. Just believe. You can repent later. Just believe right now. Don't worry about the sin and the repentance and everything else that goes with. No, don't count those costs. Just believe. 
and you'll be saved. Well, the truth is, family, before you decide to follow Christ by submitting to his lordship, because that's what that means, lordship is a high English word for boss. Jesus is, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is my boss, then he will be my savior. He will be my savior if I confess him as Lord. Before deciding to follow Christ by submitting to his leadership, him as boss or his lordship, you have to know that this is going to cost you and it's going to cost you what? To submit to him. That's what Lord means. You can't call him Lord without also submitting to him. He is your Lord because you submit to him. Somebody said to me, Jacques, no, 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 no. Grace, <laughs> just grace. You ask somebody, well, do you have any proof that you're saved? Yeah, God loves me. Folks, God doesn't, the love of God made it possible for you to be saved, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that all the believing ones will believe in him and be saved. But if a person does not believe, all they do is, all, and, and all they do is they hope that God's love is sufficient to save them. That's not how it works. No, it's you believing, and that is what is required. So a person says, Jacques, uh, this will not cost you anything. Salvation is free because it costs Jesus everything. That's why it costs you nothing. Now, there's a truth in it, but there's also a deception in the person that doesn't want to hear what Jesus is actually saying. He, he paid it all, this person says. The only thing you need to do is believe, Jacques. That's all that matters. That's all that is required. Believe. So the person who makes this argument obviously believes that believing will cost you nothing. Right? If that is the case, if believing costs you nothing, then how would you interpret what Jesus was saying when he says, count the cost. Count the cost before you build that building. Count the cost before you go to that war. What was Jesus telling them when he said to them, you're going to have to give up everything? Verse 33 of Luke 14 says, in the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. What did he mean by what he said? Give up everything. So, of course, the person who claims that all you need to do is believe and add Jesus to the life that you already are the Lord of. What did Jesus mean by counting the cost? Family, I want to submit to you that God ordained for you a cross before a crown. A sacrifice before a reward. Suffering before glory. You see, when we gain life, by get, we gain life, you and I, only by giving up the life that we have. We gain, we live only because we have died. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was the man who was um, murdered by the Nazis days before the whole empire of the Third Reich came down, because he um, strategized assassination on Hitler's life and he believed and you should read his book by the way Bonhoeffer is fantastic he's got he's a top-notch theologian and you will see um, how you you serve God by standing up to tyrants <laughs> however Bonhoeffer said this when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. That's how Christ called people. Come and die. Many evangelists say, come and get healed. Come and get blessed. Come and receive your blessing right now. It's right here in my hands. <laughs> you know, like, come and receive. Come. No, no, no. Jesus called that crowd. He said, come and die. Come and give up everything. That is how he called people to himself. You'll find it everywhere in scriptures, by the way. 
You know that whole thing about the moment you buy a car, suddenly you see everybody drive the same car you are? Same thing. If you know that this is a biblical truth, suddenly you find it everywhere. Matthew 10, 37. He who loves father or mother more than he more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. He who has found life, he who has found his life, he will lose it. And he who has lost his life for my sake, he will find it. Matthew 16, 24. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny self. Take up his cross and follow me. Mark 8, 34. And he summoned the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny self. Take up his cross and follow me. Luke 9, 23. And he was saying to them all, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny self. Take up his cross and follow me. Luke 24, 26. If anyone comes after me, and does not hate his own father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters. Yes, even his own life. He cannot be my disciple. He cannot, he cannot, he cannot be my disciples. My disciple, whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me, cannot be my disciple. Interesting, Jesus was saying all of this before he himself went to the cross. He was telling everybody else, you are going to have a cross yourself. You see, when he compares, he who, he who does not hate his father, mother, wife, children, brothers, and sisters. What he's doing is this is a comparison of loves, a comparison of loves. Unless your love for Christ far exceeds the love that you have for an earthly relationship. Let me say that again. Unless the love that you have for Christ far exceeds the love that you have for an earthly relationship, you cannot be a disciple of Christ. You could be a 21, 21st century false Christian, but you cannot be a born again disciple of Christ. Now, let me just say this quick. Oftentimes, what people do is they try to find a little loophole. They go, okay, well, you know what? I'm probably not much of a disciple. I am, however, a new creature, a born-again follower of Christ. I'm a believer. I'm a seeker. I've been all my life. <laughs> you know, praise God. At least I'm in. Did you know that the word Christian wasn't given to the church by God or the apostles or Jesus himself? The word Christian was given to the church by the world. They were on the sidelines looking on and they're going, wow, those people are like followers of that Jesus guy that claimed to be the Messiah. Those are like Christians. The only definition given to us by God through his holy word and the apostles, the only identification that you and I ought to have of who we are as disciple. We weren't called to be Christians. We were called to be disciples. And what we've done, especially here in the West, is we've divorced those two ideas where now people are okay with just being a Christian, but those people who do Wednesday night in-depth study, they're disciples. Those who go to extra classes and they go and they serve and they teach and they, they're disciples of Christ. I mean, they, they repent of sins and stuff like that. No, we, we're non-practicing. <laughs> Have you ever thought about a non-practicing? It's like, it's like they're really bad at what they do. They haven't even, pra they still got to even practice to become, <laughs> it makes no sense. There is no such thing as, no category as a non-practicing believer or non-practicing anything i'm a non-practicing husband how would that how would that work out yeah all right just checking so no no every one of us from god's terminology perspective are either a disciple or a non-disciple but you don't have this middle category of yeah well i'm a believer but i'm not yet a disciple i haven't joined the discipling class yet the discipleship class it's almost like kids they grow up and then they become what we've created this category of called the adolescent category which is an ever-growing category right you can now be a 45 year old adolescent living with you know like <laughs> living over mom right In the same way, we want to create this gray area, 
this non-committal um, ev evangelifish a category of believers. Don't have to stand for nothing. Love the world. Love Jesus in your heart. You're fine. Don't rock the boat. Then also we see in John 12, 24, it says, I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat is planted in the soil and dies, it remains alone. But its death will produce many new kernels. A plentiful harvest of new lives. That's what it will produce in the NLT, it says. Those who love their life in this world will lose it. Those who care nothing for their life in this world will keep it for eternity. What is your life? I think it's wonderful to be healthy. It's wonderful to be fit. It's wonderful to, 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 to strategize and plan, retire, all of the above. My question is, what is this? You know, some people believe when they read the scriptures that there's never supposed to be any kind of sickness anywhere. It's like, well, what are you going to die from? No, I'm going to live forever. <laughs> right. It's a little cold in here. Alec, just, just one degree. Only that side, not that side. Thank you. We're going to fix a hairdryer on that chair right there, facing backwards, and we're going to put it on a hot. <laughs> Thank you. You're welcome. You see, what is your life? What is my life? I've realized going through COVID, people have literally turned their safety into an idol, their life into an idol. That's everything about life is now about this issue right here. Nothing is more important than this. No, God is more important than that. Let me tell you now, if I offer you 85 years of pleasure, health, and wealth, and then eternal hell, and you choose 85 years of pleasure, health, and wealth. You're a fool. Who thinks that way? I think Christians find this little loophole. Well, no, no, no. I choose 85 years of zero fruitfulness and at least an eternity in heaven with no crowns. I don't know if those things are possible. For by grace you've been saved through faith, not of yourselves, as any man should boast, it's the gift of God. Ye are therefore his workmanship in Christ Jesus created unto good works. Created in Christ without works for the purpose of works. Good works. We don't work to be approved by God. Let me say it this way. We don't work in order to be affirmed by God or we don't work in order to be qualified by God. Excuse me. Christ qualifies us. We, Because we are qualified now, we love Him. And that results in fruitfulness just like a marriage does. <laughs> you see, we will never understand true salvation until we first count the cost to see if we have the willingness to build this building. So I want to show you here that there are two expressions that Jesus gives, two expressions in what it looks like to follow him. Because he says, unless you do this, you cannot be my disciple. The first expression is self-denial. The second expression is picking up your cross and following him, right? So I just want to zone in and see this is where the nail, you know, where Jesus hit that nail right on the head when he called people to himself. Self-denial, deny self. You cannot be my disciple if you don't do that. And pick up your cross and follow me. This is what you need to do. These are the things required of you in order to be called a disciple of Christ. So at the end of the day, the gospel of Jesus Christ, when you hear it preached, you have to hear the cross in there. Too many crossless gospels being sold. Oh, you don't have to die. You don't have to repent. Grace of God. You're good. Come in. You're good. 
if you don't hear a gospel, if you don't hear a cross, the instrument of death inside of the gospel, it's not the gospel at all. Just coming to get healed, come to Jesus to get, that's not the gospel. So, any gospel that does not call you to deny self, self-denial, therefore, is not the true gospel. So, what does it mean to deny self and pick up your cross? Well, first, the cross means it's an instrument of death. When Jesus told them to pick up your cross, they understood exactly what Jesus was saying. Remember, for those of you in first and second year, we're talking about hermeneutics, or we're going through hermeneutics in the Bible school. One of the rules that you have to do what you, things you have to do is you have to ask who's speaking, who's been spoken to, and what was the hearer understanding the, the author say? What did he understand? Well, they understood when Jesus said, pick up your cross, they understood that he was talking about an instrument of death because there were thousands of people in the Roman Empire being crucified. Thousands of them were crucified. Not the Jews, though, but in the Roman Empire. So here when Jesus was saying to them, pick up your cross, they were like, the Romans? Wow, that's wild. You, you're telling us to, to pick up the instrument of death. It was very clear to them. We see that Jesus, when he picked up his cross, he was embracing God's plan of atonement. He was embracing God's plan to give himself as God's perfect lamb to be slaughtered. So what was Jesus doing? I was thinking about this last night. What was he doing when he was picking up that cross and walking with it? He was doing the Father's will, not his own. He was, that is called self-denial. He was doing his Father's will, not his own. God gave us children that at the age of two, it's called the terrible twos. We called it the terrific twos. Because we didn't believe in the terrible twos. Why? Because we realized that this is the window of opportunity God has given us to raise the psyche and the bent of this human that he has given to our, for us to, uh, to raise and to be good stewards over. He's given us this child at that age where there's... The clash of the wills. That's the time to say, okay, now, this is how you lay down your will and you submit yourself to your father's will, okay? Learn this on a daily basis. Get used to it because you're soon going to be eyeball to eyeball with the father in heaven and he's going to say, what are you going to do? Are you going to lay down your will and submit to mine or are you going to demand I submit my will to yours? <laughs> Which one? So parents oftentimes train their kids to demand that their will be executed and the parent lay down their will. That's not the way to train your child to respond to God in a glorifying way. Because you don't want to have to train your child to know what it's like to lay down their will on their 18th birthday. You don't want to start there. So what was Jesus doing when he picked up the cross? He was doing his father's will and not his own. He was giving himself to God's purposes and not his own pleasures. He was giving up his own privileges. He was giving up his heavenly rights. He was giving up his divine freedoms in order to see his father glorified. That's what he was doing. So, we learn what it means to pick up a cross, means to die to self, lay down your will. But what does it mean to deny self? What is self-denial? I have a few thoughts here for you. And the first is, I deny myself when I renounce the sufficiency of my own goodness. Most people, when you watch these Ray Comfort videos, when he's walking around up and down the beach in California and he's leading people to the Lord. For most part, when people are asked, why would God allow you into heaven if you had to die tonight? 
They say because I'm a good person. But the Bible calls us to understand that even our best deeds are like filthy rags because they weren't done for God's glory. How many of you will agree that it's a really good deed to help an old lady across a very busy street? Yeah. Okay. But the confusion in that is it's not that that's not a good thing to do. Yes, you should do that. But the thing that Jesus was saying is that even your best deeds are filthy rags to God. Why? Because they aren't done for His glory. They're done for her safety or for your reputation. But when is, some, when is something done for His glory? When does He get the glory for what has been done? Only then does that act not smell filthy before God. We're attempting to equate Helping an old lady across the street as being a righteous act as God is righteous. No. If you are thinking of equating that, it's because you do not understand just how perfect God really is. So we have to renounce the sufficiency of our own goodness. Then we have started denying self. Stop leaning on the arm of the flesh. Deny that your, your goodness is good enough for God. Isaiah 64 verse 6b says, And all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. Romans 10 3 says, Since they did not know the righteousness of God and sought to be to establish their own. See? They seek to establish their own righteousness. And that is what's at fault with the world today. This whole virtue signaling smells like, smells like dirty rags in God's nostrils. <coughs> let me just show you again Romans 10 3 since they did not know the righteousness of God and therefore they sought to establish their own righteousness number two I deny myself when I refuse to depend on my own wisdom Isaiah 5 verse 21 says woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight Romans 1.22 says, claiming to be wise, guess what happened? They became fools. Number three, I deny myself when I surrender my will for his. Again, in Luke 22.42, it says, nevertheless, Jesus said in the Garden of Gethsemane, he says, not my will, but yours be done. Can you lay down your will so God's will can be established in your life. Of course, we're not talking about His sovereign will. You can't reject His sovereign will over your life. But you can break His moral will. And you can throw away His wisdom that He's offered. This statement Jesus made is often repeated by people as some kind of vague esoteric saying. Without putting any substance to it. They go like, not my will, not my, but He's be done. Not my will, but He's be done. I have a scripture is God's revealed will. Well, <laughs> that would mean when I things like when I choose to walk according to Scripture and not according to my flesh, I have given up my will. I want many things that I shouldn't have. When I say, well, even though I want it, I'm going to do what Scripture tells me to do even if I don't want that. What do you think happened in the Garden of Gethsemane? Jesus said, not my will, but yours be done anyway. He had to not do what he wanted to do in order to do what God wanted him to do. So in other words, it comes down to, okay, I desire something that I'm going to keep saying no to for the rest of my life. I really want something, but I'm going to have to say no to it for the rest of my life. Then you've laid down your will. If scripture is God's revealed will, well then, when I walk according to biblical standards for marriage, and not according to my feelings, I've given up my will. I've laid down my will. When I choose a verse over a feeling, family, when you choose a verse over a feeling, you have laid down your will. I know it sounds trivial, but it's huge. <laughs> Again, for those that haven't heard me say it, I say it so many times. You cannot be led by the Spirit and by feelings both at the same time. They go contrary. 
They go opposite. Jason, if I if 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 I walk over there and I slap you, what would you feel like doing? Slapping me back. The Bible tells you to do contrary to what you feel like doing. It says turn the other cheek. If I walk over to you and I say to you, hey, walk a mile, what do you feel like doing in this heat? Like say, no, you walk a mile. But the Bible tells you to do contrary to what you feel. Walk too. <laughs> So really, Scripture, the revealed will of God, is a call to lay down your will by doing contrary to what you feel and doing what you know glorifies and pleases Him. So when I choose a verse over a feeling, I've given up my will for His. When I reject the natural urge, and here we are, to trivialize Scripture, but instead make it a priority in my life, then I've laid down my will. It is natural. It is natural for every one of us to go like, well, you know, um, it's actually become funny when we joke about how much people's Bibles accumulate dust, right? It's become a joke. And, but we shouldn't really because trivializing the Word of God becomes is a natural thing for all of us. But when we decide that we're going to reject this natural urge to just trivialize the things of God or the Word of God and make it a priority over every other busy thing we need to get done in this world and in this life. What is our life? Uh, it's, our life is important enough to trivialize the Word. No, it's not. That's what the person says who's willing to have an 85-year-long life of pleasures and achievements, but lose his soul for eternity. So in other words, what I'm saying is, Scripture is God's revealed will. And when I say, I will not trivialize the Word of God, no matter how much I feel like trivializing it or skipping over it today, I lay down my will and I prioritize the Word. Number four, I deny myself when I submit myself to the Lordship of Christ. Instead of my own life, instead of running my own life as I please. This is bigger than you realize. Christianity, if we had to take just five of these four statements, <laughs> Christianity would look so different if we had to just kind of like give ourselves to this. Think about it. I deny myself when I submit myself to the Lordship of Christ instead of running my own life as I please. You see, as a believer, I have a new master. As a new creature, I used to be a slave to sin. But now, as a new creature, sin is no longer my master. I now have, cha I have changed masters. I'm now owned by somebody else. But what does that mean? That means I have a new love. I have a new commitment. I find new pleasure. I used to love my sin. And resisted righteousness. I have a now that Christ is my Lord. He's my boss. He's my leader. And I loathe my sin against him. And I love to pursue his righteousness. This does not mean that the believer finds zero pleasure in sin. This was always so confusing for me. Because the pastor would get on the stage and he would say like, Oh, I hate my sin. And then I'd sit there going like, well, I kind of enjoyed it. I guess I'm not saved. Yeah, the Bible says that there is, there's a season in which you're going to find pleasure. But that season is short-lived. How many of you will agree with me? Anybody experience that? <laughs> it's very short-lived. It's that next morning, whenever it is, you go like, unbelievable. I feel, I feel a million times worse. Because you now love, you have changed your loves. Number five, I, I deny myself when I renew my mind, thinking according to scripture and not according to culture or myself. You see, the way I deny myself by, is by renewing my mind when I let go of my opinion, 
to embrace God's opinion. You know, here's the sin of our generation. Are you ready? The sin of our generation is that people now have become God's judge. People are judging Scripture, not realizing that they've judged God by doing so. They turn their nose up to Scripture. They turn their nose up to the Bible. It's archaic. It's outdated. It's old-fashioned. We've gone beyond it now. We're more enlightened, whatever the case may be. Not knowing that they have just judged God. That's the sin of this generation. But when we renew our minds, when we go like, all right, I'm thinking wrong. I got to think right. You have just denied yourself. You've just laid down your will. When I let go of my opinion and I embrace God's written opinion. Let me just say this quick. Um, you know, here in the West, especially in the United States, our culture is so toxic when it comes to political differences. And when it comes to that time of, the, of every four years, it's such a shakeup. But I just want to let you know, you don't get... You don't get to think outside of scriptures. And I'm not, you know, trust me when I tell you, I am not, I'm not preaching for the Republicans. Absolutely not. On the contrary. Like what are they even trying to preserve or conserve? They're conservatives, right? What are they trying to conserve if they're trying to make the tent so big to include LGBT and everybody else? What are they trying to conserve? They're not conserving anything. So what I'm saying is, I'll bring up woke because everybody's so familiar with it, right? Do you realize that you can't be non-woke? If you're just sitting on the sidelines, you're woke. <laughs> You have to actually be anti-something to not be it. He that's not for me, guess what? He's against me. You have to be actually against sin, not neutral to it. Are you following me? So you have to stand up against stuff, even if it's in your own party. Right? Absolutely. And that is how Satan comes in. While it's pragmatic, it works. Make this thing bigger. Add crazy to it. No. What are you conserving? Can't do that. So I just want to let you know up front. Because, you know, you we're walking into a firestorm. What's this month? This is... This is happy month. <laughs> and then we have... Um, we have elections. We have so many things going on. Let me just tell you, family. We don't get... To have our own opinion contrary to God's principles. We don't. You just don't. And you don't get you don't get to be shy of or embarrassed of God's stance or God's stand in a specific situation. Even if you're the only one, and that's the point. Even if there's nobody but you, praise God for you. Think about how these these guys were like, for instance, Wycliffe. It was nobody but him. The prophet said, God, there's nobody but me. <laughs> God said, get over yourself. What's your life? You think I'm not in charge here? <laughs> no. And I can tell you right now, many times you're going to feel like it's just you. But you don't get to have an opinion contrary to God. No. You let go of your opinion to embrace what God has already said. That is what it means to lay down your will. When I let go of my view of something in order to embrace God's scriptural view of that same thing. Now I'm laying down my will. I'm just trying to put feet to these thoughts. Because it's so easy to say, not my will but yours be done, Lord. When it comes to who to marry and like, yeah, but that's not what it's talking about. It's talking about the revealed will of God. Not my will but scripture. Now I've laid down my will 
before him. We just covered different ways of thinking over the last few weeks. You know, liberalism and humanism, secularism and so forth. As we looked at all those ideologies that elevates itself against the knowledge of God. And this is where the war is at. When that ideology comes, it's wrapped with it's wrapped with beautiful paper. There's always something good about it. Well, what about a person's freedom? Well, what about it? That's not free. Sin's not free. So I deny myself when I renew my mind. Number six, I deny myself when I live toward holiness and not toward my own happiness. So glorifying God instead of satisfying self. Honestly, we've made self the idol of everything. There's a book on the Christian shelf. It's called The Rise of Self. The Rise of Modern Self, I think. Um, who's the author? Do you remember? The Rise of Modern Self. Uh, even Ben Shapiro said, who's not a Christian, that this is the best book of this decade. But the whole concept is that this is what's happening. Self has become um, the center of everything, front and center. And that is not what it means to lay down your will before the Lord. That's the opposite thereof. Galatians 2 verse 20 says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. So to be a disciple of Christ means you deny self for his glory, not your own comfort, not your own convenience, not your own safety. Not your own comfort, not your own convenience, not your own safety. We would never have had a reformation if safety was the most important thing around here. We would never have had an early church if safety is what it's about. If healing is what it's about. No. On the contrary, they lost all of that for the word's sake. I've been in youth ministry most of my life, most of my ministry life, spent in youth ministry, I believe. I think it was most of it. One thing I've learned is that a child gets... A child who gets his way all the time is the most unhappiest child in that room. Have you noticed? It's true for you. You have your way. You sit on the couch flipping through the channels all day long, eating Cheetos. Guess what? You get disgusted with yourself eventually. <laughs> You're the most unhappy self you've been. You jump up. You be disciplined. You do what you need to get done. You take care of all your responsibilities. You go like, man, that was a good day. Total difference. Total difference. There is a liberation that comes when the child is freed from self and given to what's important and necessary. Let me say it again. There's a liberation that takes place when that child gets freed from himself. When you say, son, actually, no, no, that's not happening anymore. Um, you're going to have to just Go and cry in a corner, but that's no longer happening. Okay, guess what? Joy comes back. Because as I mentioned last week, there's a difference between pleasure and joy. People chase after pleasure thinking that it's going to fill their joy. It's not. It's giving up that pleasure that allows you to have joy. I'll show it to you in Scripture. While there is an emptiness in having your own will continually, there's joy on the other side of denying self. While there's an emptiness... In elevating self, there's joy at denying self. Watch this in Hebrews 12, verse 1 and 2. This is our last verse. Hebrews 12, verse 1 and 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter, the perfecter of our faith. Here it is. Watch out. For the joy... That was set before him, he did what? Endured the cross. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. 
He went through losing everything in order to get to that place of joy. He endured the pain. He endured the grief. He endured the cross because there was a joy on the other side of having surrendered his will to the will of his father. Many will see God as a narcissist. Do what I tell you. Lay down your will. Elevate my will. <laughs> do everything I want you to do. Well, if you think about it, Adam exercised his own will at the expense of God's will. And death followed. Jesus exercised God, God's will at the expense of his own will and life followed. God knows your freedom is in you not having your own will established. <laughs> As a matter of fact, it's true all the way through. Your eternal freedom even is in you not having your will, but laying your will down so that God's will may be established. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much that we can be trained, taught, encouraged, and called to denying self, self-denial. Jesus, you said over and over and over again is a requirement for being a disciple. And Lord, there's nothing we do perfectly. We don't have faith perfectly. We don't repent perfectly. Our repentance isn't perfect. Nothing about us is perfect, God. You perfect us. You even say, that we have to look to you, the founder and the perfecter of our faith. You are the perfecter of all of who we are. But God, I pray on this journey that you will help us, teach us what it means to lay down our will. While every head's bowed and every eye is closed, you know that God is currently talking to your heart. There are many areas in our lives we have to go, God, not, not my will, not my will, not my will. Because I know my freedom depends upon me not having my will be done. But my freedom depends on you having your will be done in my life. Amen. Amen. Amen.